I don't know about you, but I'm constantly struck by the kindness of God our Father. Did you pick it up in Deuteronomy 18, as uh, Tim read it to us? The people said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. They couldn't bear to hear God's voice. And so he gives them a prophet so they'd hear him speak to them. And he still does today, doesn't he? Uh, last week, at the beginning of our series, Name Above All Names, remember, Alastair Begg and Sinclair Ferguson with this book guiding us through, um, we heard of the seed of the woman, the promise of God that one would come who would crush the head of the serpent. He himself would be bruised in the heel along the way. But that promise, we were reminded last week, came in the midst of the fall of humanity when sin entered the world and with sin all the guilt and shame and then the consequences and curse of God and death to come with it. As Adam, our representative, in him all humanity reached out and took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in doing so we exchanged the truth of God for a lie. We forsook true knowledge of God and we wanted a different knowledge apart from God. We chose and we strive still to be as God rather than trusting and submitting to God as our creator and Lord. Early in the book of Acts, it's not just in Genesis 3 that we hear those things. It goes right through scripture. In Acts 3, we hear Peter explaining to the Jews, God's own beloved chosen people, what they did to God's chosen one. Another similar exchange. Peter says, you denied the holy and righteous one. And instead, you asked for a murderer to be granted to you. You killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. Just consider that for a moment. If you think about fairy tales and books you might read, consider the implications if a character in a book or a movie killed the author of that book or movie. What happens to the character? They cease to exist. The very source of life for the character. And yet here we are killing the author of life. Sobering thought, really, isn't it? Last week, against the vast majority, sadly, of practising Anglicans worldwide, I don't know if you've picked up on the Anglican news in the world, the General Synod of the Church of England chose to exchange the word and wisdom of centuries past in Scripture and their own doctrine and the 39 Articles to welcome proposals that would enable same-sex couples to come to church after a civil marriage or partnership to give thanks, to dedicate their relationship to God and to receive God's blessing. Huge rift in God's people because of that. They've forsaken the word and wisdom of ages gone past for the truth of today, the word of the world. All of that taking place just days before what's taken place over this weekend in Sydney. World pride. Not a proud day for the church last week. Not a proud day for our nation. 
even with our own PM making history, marching with many others. We, as the church, we need to find a better way, don't we, to actually connect with, converse with and share with people of our culture, our society, without compromising the truth of God. We need to listen to them, but we need in that to be hearing God's word continually and speaking God's word, being sustained by it, because you and I and our children, that's all happening out there, but it's happening in here too, isn't it, in different ways. As we are faced with similar choices on a variety of matters every day, whose voice, whose word are we going to listen to? Which wisdom are we going to take on board? Wisdom from above or worldly wisdom? Or are we going to think if we can mix the two together, we get a really good blend? (laughs) It doesn't work that way. Will I get angry and take matters into my own hands when something goes wrong? Or will I trust God who says vengeance is mine? Love your enemy instead. Will I get angry as I see people zipping down the car park here at five past ten? Or will I rejoice in the fact the Lord's brought them together together? Will I take a second more prolonged glance at that woman down at the beach? Or will I choose not to commit lust and adultery in my heart? Whose voice am I going to listen to? Will I take the second biscuit or piece of pie after church for morning tea? Or will I actually love and serve others? Will I choose to love? Just about every decision we make in life, is that's at the base of it, isn't it? God's told us it's the best way to live. He actually says, this is the way my kingdom functions. Are we going to listen to that? Are we going to take his word for it? Or are we going to say, no, I think there's a better way. I'll look after number one. Thank you very much. We need to be hearing God's word today, don't we? I don't know if you remember, if you're alive. Anyone here watch the movie Days of Thunder back in 1990? Tom Cruise, Nicole Kidman? Nobody? (laughs) Days of misspent youth. Okay. Days of Thunder is all about NASCAR racing. Racing a car around a track as fast as you can. Tom Cruise, he's the rookie speedster. There's a clash of competitors both on the track and off. And, of course, there's the romance with Cruise's character and the beautiful Doctor played by Nicole Kidman. But early on in the movie, if I remember rightly, there's a horrific crash on the track as Cole, Cruz's character, um, goes through what's already been a collision and he goes through in the place where there's not meant to be any cars and just rams into someone and his car flips and turns. Anyway, the next scene, he's in hospital being raced around on a stretcher all strapped up and his head all strapped up. There's bright lights everywhere. Except for Cruz, because for him it's all dark. He can't see a thing. He's cracked his head pretty big and it's swollen. His brain, and he can't see because of the swelling in his brain. Everyone else is around him, all the lights are there, and everyone else is talking in another room. They're talking about him, but they're not talking to him. And in his fear and his desperation, he calls out, Could someone tell me what's going on? I'm blind here. I can't see. And then a bit later, as he's going through the scan machine, he says, Could someone talk to me? 
When I'm driving, I've got a guy on the radio. He speaks to me. And he's lost without that voice. He's desperate for someone to speak to him, to be his eyes and his ears, to let him know what's going on and what's going to happen. You could say he needs a prophet. At least he knows he needs someone to speak to him because so much of the world don't. Blind and deaf to our own blindness and deafness. For humanity, it hasn't been a car crash, but sin and idolatry has made us blind and deaf to the word of God and the truth of God. If we're honest, we too, we're afraid. We're scared, oblivious to what's going on, what has happened and what's going to happen. And we need somebody else to tell us, somebody outside of our situation. Not just to tell us what is happening, but what's going to happen and a prophet doesn't just sometimes we think prophets just tell the future they do do that they tell us what's going to happen but they also speak God's word into the situation they make clear to us they reveal to us what is happening but in our stubbornness and rebellion and sin so many times we have chosen not to listen we've preferred to see or not to see what God would show us closed our eyes to it and as a result As I said, we don't even realise we can't see or hear. We've exchanged the glory of God for images, the truth of God for a lie. And in that exchange, we've made a deal with the devil who blinds us. Callan read from Isaiah 40. I want to read to you from Isaiah 44. Have a listen to what the prophet Isaiah says about the foolishness and stupidity of idolatry. This is from the New Living Translation. How foolish are those who manufacture idols. These prized objects are really worthless. The people who worship idols don't know this, so they're put to shame. Who but a fool would make his own God an idol that cannot help him one bit? The blacksmith, he stands at his forge and he makes a sharp tool and pounding and shaping it with all his might. His work makes him hungry and weak. It makes him thirsty and faint. And then the woodcarver, he measures a block of wood and he draws a pattern on it. He works his chisel and plane and carves into it a human figure. He gives it human beauty and puts it on a little shrine. He cuts down cedars. He selects the cypress and the oak and plants the pine in the forest to be nourished by the rain. And then he uses part of that same wood to make a fire. With it, he warms himself and bakes his bread. Then, yes, it's true... He takes the rest of it and makes himself a god to worship. He makes an idol and bows down in front of it. He burns part of the tree to roast his meat and to keep himself warm and says, ah, that fire feels good. And then he takes what's left and makes his god, a carved idol. He falls down in front of it, worshipping and praying to it, saying, rescue me, you are my god. He's just burnt the other half. Such stupidity and ignorance. Their eyes are closed and they cannot see. Their minds are shut and they cannot think. The person who made the idol never stops to reflect. Why? It's just a block of wood. I burned half of it for heat and used it to bake my bread and roast meat. How can the rest of it be a god? Should I bow down and worship a piece of wood? 
The poor deluded fool feeds on ashes. He trusts something that cannot help him at all. And yet he cannot bring himself to ask, is this idol that I'm holding in my hand a lie? It's a story of how we become like the very things we worship. It's the truth of how we become like the very things we worship, blind, deaf and dumb. Now you might not have a little shrine at home or a little wooden or metal idol, but we don't need to have physical idols or statues for that dynamic to be just as powerfully at work in our lives, do we? And we see it in the world. In the New Testament, Paul tells us in Romans 1 something very similar as God gives us up to our idols, to the lusts and desires of our hearts. He says this, Although we knew God, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him. Instead, they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. It's already similar, isn't it? Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonouring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And God gave them up to dishonourable passions. World pride. Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And if we have a listen to how Paul lists these things, it's not just those big, obvious, sinful ways of life. Some of these are really subtle. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness and malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness, gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, Disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. We don't need to be walking the streets of Sydney to be involved in this, do we? Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they know his word, but they reject it. They not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. The world is proud of its sin, glories in it, and encourages others in it too. Such is the result of idolatry, of exchanging the truth of God and the word of God for a lie. We need a prophet. We need someone to speak to us and to wake us up from our slumber, to slap us across the face maybe and knock some sense into us. Someone to speak to us in the darkness. Someone to come to us in our sinful ignorance and reveal God to us. I was actually thinking this week, some of my best thoughts I think happen when I'm out on the bike. (laughs) Um, I wonder actually today, I wasn't sure whether to share this, but I wonder today if the church actually needs its own new exodus. Now I don't mean by that Christ has had his departure, he talked about that, didn't he, on the Mount of Transformation. His departure, his... That's the exodus we all need, Christ's death and his resurrection. But I wonder if we need in a certain way, if not just spiritually, 
like it was for Moses and the people in Egypt. A removing from the world, a taking out of the world so that we might worship the Lord again without all the clutter and idolatry and cultural stuff that's just come into the church rather than blending our worship. Now, the thing is, we're not to do that and then cloister ourselves off from the world, are we? That's not how it can be because we've actually been called into the world to speak God's truth as God's people. And so somehow we need to remind ourselves and be reminded and God needs to refresh us in his holiness and the fact that he's called us to be holy, to be set apart from the world, different. And that's going to be difficult, and it is difficult, isn't it? But we need to be reminded of what that looks like. We're going through the Beatitudes with the youth group starting last night. It's different to what the world says. God says you'll be blessed if you're meek, humble and gentle. The world says, no, if you want to be blessed, if you want to do well, you've got to be strong, you'll be assertive, you've got to squash anyone that gets in your way. God's kingdom is different. And it will be difficult, but there's promises in those beatitudes, in God's word. You'll inherit the earth. Those who mourn, do you grieve at what's taken place this weekend? You'll be comforted. But we'd better mourn, grieve at sin. Let my people go, God said, that they might worship me. And he's saying the same today, that we, he desires people to worship him in spirit and truth. The world needs a prophet. We need a prophet if we are ever to know God. Scriptures tell us, don't they, that in our sin we're dead in our transgression and sin. And like Lazarus, think about Lazarus, dead and buried in his tomb for four days. If we are dead in our transgressions and sin, how is it we could ever turn to God? How is it we could even hear God's word? Because the dead don't hear anything, do they? If you've been with someone in palliative care, someone in a coma, you would have heard probably that still speak to them because they're still hearing you. Maybe it's one of the last things to go. But once they're dead, they stop listening. (laughs) And yet God's word comes. Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, speaks to Lazarus. And a dead man hears his voice and says, come out. And he comes out. Because there's power in the word of God. Because there's resurrection power in the words of Christ in the truth of Christ, in the person of Christ, that same resurrection power we read in Ephesians is at work in you and I and in the church. Do you believe that? Is that where your hope and your trust is today? When you see things that are dead and dying and losing hope? Do you have resurrection hope in God's word and in the living word of Christ? Because the dead don't hear. And yet that word comes and doesn't just unstop plugged up ears, it actually brings life to our hearing, to our hearts. Isn't that what's happened to you? God's spoken to you and says, Live. 
Repent, believe. Come to me, all you who are weary. I'll give you rest. Did one day God himself reveal himself to you? Even though you were once blind. But now you see. You know the old hymn. How can a blind person see unless God reveals himself to them? Because he spoke to you. And you heard that word. And he granted for you to know and believe that that word was truth. And in that word was life. As he called you personally. Like the psalmist, you can now cry out, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. Go to lots of other places for life and comfort and salvation, don't we? I'm severely afflicted. Would you give me life, O Lord, according to your word? Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Because Christ has come to us and spoken to us, we know that we cannot live by bread alone. might keep you alive for a few days, but we only live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Every word. Don't be selective. Every word. And if you haven't heard that word, if you haven't heard God speak to you, young or old. Maybe he's speaking to you right now. And you might pray and say, Lord, would you help me hear? Speak, Lord. Young Samuel said, your servant is listening. I want to hear what you've got to say to me. Young Augustine. He didn't hear the voice of God audibly, but he heard a bunch of young children playing a game, yelling out, Tole lege. Take up and read. Take up and read. Read God's word. Listen to him. Don't know if you know the story of John Piper, but years ago when he was given a diagnosis of cancer, he claimed that God spoke to him. Some of his more conservative critics said, how can God speak to you? thinking the Spirit doesn't speak to us today. And Piper said, well, actually, it was no audible voice I heard. God speaks to me right here. Because that morning or soon earlier, sometime earlier in his devotions, he was reading 1 Thessalonians 5. And as God spoke to him in the doctor's room with that diagnosis, he heard God say to him, Piper, this is not wrath. Whether you live or die, this is not God's judgment on you. That was Piper's words. The words he heard were these ones because he'd just finished reading them. God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Does God speak to you? Got pages, reams of it. That's the selective bit you don't need to... No, that's the... That's the church directory to pray through. Aren't you glad we have a God who speaks to us? 
has spoken to us and continues to speak to us, a saviour who, despite our sinful rebellion and our stubbornness ongoing, doesn't give us the silent treatment. Who's guilty of that? I am. But we have one who actually comes to us and speaks a word full of grace and truth. Who, even as he comes in judgment, speaks words of comfort. Comfort my people. And he speaks tenderly to sinners. And aren't you glad Jesus prayed for his disciples before he went to the cross? That the Father would sanctify them, knowing what was ahead, knowing that this word needed to be written down. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. This is Jesus praying to his Father for his disciples. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. That they would actually know by the Spirit all of who Jesus is and what he's taught and what he's done and would write it down so that we would have this apostolic truth to read and to live by. As the writer of Hebrews says, God has spoken many times in many ways through the prophets, but in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, Jesus Christ, the true prophet. Taking me a long time to get to that phrase, but that's our title for this morning. Jesus Christ, the true prophet. You know, in ourselves, in our fallen state, none of us can find God. Despite what the world says, look hard enough, find hard enough, go and find yourself. Find, we won't find it inside ourselves. We won't be able to create our own ideas and images. That's what we've just read from Isaiah in Romans 1, isn't it? Of who God is and what our needs are and how he's going to meet them. No, God is God. He alone is God. He actually created us, remember? <laughs> and how did he do it? By his word, let there be. And he shaped us with his own hands. He made us in his image. It's not up to us to make him in ours. How rude is that? How fickle is that? And he actually comes seeking and searching and he finds us. He speaks to us, just as he did back in the garden, to Adam. Where are you? Words of love. Son of man, son of God comes to do what? To seek and save the lost. He comes and says, where are you? He'll go out looking for the lost sheep. And his sheep know his voice. As he comes looking, following, pursuing us all the days of our life in his goodness and mercy. And yes, some will say, yeah, but isn't there enough? We look at this beautiful creation and we see something of God. See a sunset or a sunrise or look at one another. Diversity, richness of, yes, it's wonderful. We actually see something of God and his power and his nature in creation. But it's not enough for saving knowledge. 
It's only by revelation, by God himself making himself known to us. And that revelation comes to us primarily by his word through the spirit as that word speaks to our innermost heart. Firstly, it comes to us in the very person of Jesus Christ, that word incarnate. The word became flesh, as we read in John 1. And he's come to show us the Father. To demonstrate his love for us by this. How? While we were still sinners. Christ bore our sin on the cross. And then God himself has chosen to reveal himself in the written word. Inspired by the Spirit in the Scriptures. Moses, as we heard, he was a great prophet. There were other prophets before him, but like Abel, but Moses is the first great prophet. And way back then, through Moses, God gave his word that he would raise up for them another prophet. It's to him you shall listen. I wonder if those on the Man of Transfiguration thought of Deuteronomy 18 when God said, This is my beloved Son. Listen to him. Hear his word and listen to him. He's the prophet that Moses prophesied about. Moses, we're told, gave them bread from heaven, the manna in the wilderness to keep them going. Forty years. What keeps you going? Father sent his son. Jesus says, I am the true bread from heaven. The bread of life gives life to the world. It's by that bread, by that word that we live. And as Jesus comes, he says himself, I don't come to do my own will, but my father's. I don't say, I don't do anything other than what the father has taught me to do and to say. He's a true prophet in the sense that he comes speaking the word of the one who has sent him. But he's not just the one who comes and speaks that word. He is that word. And it's only by listening to him as we come to believe in him, that we will have life. It's actually how any of us have faith. Paul tells us that in Romans 10, doesn't it? Everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. There's no distinction between Jew or Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing riches on all who call on him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. But how will they call if they haven't believed? And how does anyone believe if they've never heard of him? And how are they to hear unless someone is preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? And so faith, your faith and mine comes how? Through hearing. And even our hearing comes through the word or the preaching of Christ. And so we need to pray that the Lord would go on opening our eyes and ears and open the eyes and ears of the world that we would hear his voice, that we would have faith and continue to walk in faith and hear his word to know how to take each step today. Young or old, each of our steps are different. We're making different choices. But every step is to be a step of faith. Hearing the word of Christ to us. And as we hear that word, 
as God's people now, we're to declare the praises of him who's called us out of darkness into his marvellous light. I was going to share how a prophet often comes in judgment, but as Christ comes in judgment, he actually bears that judgment. I want us to hear that, but I actually want to just finish with this. Because he actually sent us with the power of that same word into the world. Yes, in one sense, as I said, we somehow need a new exodus, but we also need a refreshed sending into the world with the power and confidence in this world that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Let me just read the last couple of pages of Begg and Sinclair and Ferguson. I'll use their last names. If we accept this, the truth of God and Christ being the prophet and his word that's come to us, we bow down before the truth of Christ's prophetic ministry and then we stand up on our feet ready to serve the Lord. If we accept this, something will happen. We will be endued with a sense of confidence, a God-emboldened confidence and the kind of confidence that will allow us to be courageous in the face of all the challenges of our day. It will make us bold enough, not bombastic, but bold enough to be faithful to our Lord and his commission, despite the pluralism and syncretism of our culture, all the mishmash and blending of gods and religion and culture. This will give us the courage to say that there is no other name under heaven among men by which people can be saved. We won't be embarrassed that Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Nor will we put a full stop there, but be prepared to go on finishing the statement. No one comes to the Father except through me. We will be unashamed of the exclusivism of Christ's salvation. He alone is the way to God and the only mediator between man and God. And we will be encouraged to tell others about him because we know that he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. There is a gracious boldness that comes from this. But alongside this boldness, there is another result of the conviction that Christ is our true prophet. Compassion. A compassion that leads us in the words of the old hymn. Rescue the perishing, care for the dying. Snatch them in pity from sin and the grave. Weep over the erring one. Lift up the fallen. Tell them of Jesus, the mighty to save. Some of us are good at boldness, but not so good at compassion. We gravitate to all the bold verses, but turn away from the gospel's call to show genuine empathy. We need to remember the boldness of Jesus. He is the Christ whose zeal for his father's house consumed him in the temple. I think Naveen's preaching on that this morning. He is the Christ who drove out the money changers because they were turning his father's house into a supermarket. And he is the Christ who has set his face steadfastly to go to Jerusalem and the cross, always about his father's business. But we must never lose sight of the fact that when Jesus, having sung with other pilgrims the songs of ascent, when he arrived in Jerusalem, he cried out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered you, your children, together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you are not willing. When we recognise Jesus as the true prophet, 
exercising his ministry with compassionate boldness, then we may learn, despite our natural weakness, to be bold with a boldness that comes from him. And despite our natural selfishness, to discover a compassion that comes from Christ and makes us say, Oh, Cleveland, Cleveland, or Coro, or Adelaide, or Australia, and mourn over the sin of the world and actually go and share the good news of Christ with it. We're going to sing a song. We haven't sung it for a long, long time here, and our musos have wrestled with it, but that's okay. It's actually a song that does exactly that, shows the compassion of those who have heard the voice of God, but also has the hope and confidence that Christ has broken sin's bonds and can and will continue to do so as the light is poured out from on high. So let's stand and sing as a prayer for us this morning. My eyes ran down fountain of tears. If you don't know it, that's okay. By the third or fourth or seventh verse, you will.